1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And um, going to read three verses, and uh, then we're going to end up jumping back and looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, but we're going to end back up at the very end, back on these three verses. And I think they set the theme of what I, I want to speak about very well this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 and uh, verse number 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, it's a free country? Odds are, whatever they were doing, they probably shouldn't have been doing. I remember being on the playground before and a little kid would be doing something like, what, why are you doing, well, it's a free country, I can do what I want. Uh, yeah may not be illegal, but it's probably unnecessary. It's kind of similar to when someone says, uh, says only God can judge me. Uh, that, that's been a popular thing these last few years uh, online and different things. And, and I think, uh, you don't really know what you're talking about there. I don't think you really want God judging you at all. I think we can all recognize that there are some things you should not do, and then there's some things you probably shouldn't do. You should not murder that person that cut you off in traffic. That murder's taking it too far. You probably shouldn't give that waitress a piece of your mind when your order gets messed up. You probably don't have enough mind to spare to give her a piece. For our for the sermon this morning, I want to look at that kind of judging that gray area where it's is it maybe I could do it, but should I? It's the topic of Christian liberty. And the subject speaking on is the limits of Christian liberty. Sometimes people talk about Christians having freedom in Christ. And I get what they're saying, but that's not exactly true. When we're saved, we're not given freedom to do whatever we want. Freedom means you there's no bounds, you, you do whatever. But we are instead given liberty. That is freedom to move within certain parameters, within certain bounds. Um, I think of dogs on this. Uh, our dogs, we've we've got those two little uh, two little dachshunds, and Bentley Bentley's an awesome dog. Our, our black lab, the dachshunds, they're not right. And uh, the the but the little dachshunds, they think they're the big dogs. And so when my neighbor's cows are out in the pasture, they think they can go take on those cows. And uh, the Amazon truck, oh my goodness, Ooh, you think the Amazon truck? Uh, that they want to eat that Amazon truck alive when it shows up, or the or the post office, or anybody else. So what do we do to protect those little dogs? We don't just give them the freedom to run around the whole place and the neighbor's place and everywhere else. You know what? We give them liberty to go in the front yard because if not, they're going to go out there and they're going to bite somebody or get kicked by a cow or. I don't know what stupid thing they'd end up doing. But that's that's the difference between liberty and freedom. There are clear commands that set the boundary lines for us. The Ten Commandments are a great place to start on that. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Those, those are great parameters we, we could start with. You might hear somebody say, well, I'm not going to kill them. I'm just going to beat them half to death. You know, well, 
I, I think in the spirit of the law, that's still not exactly right to do. <laughs> uh, we have other commands about hatred and violence uh, that, that you ought to look in in, in that case. So some things are, are just not very cut and dry for us, uh, be honest. Um, I was thinking of uh, just uh, some things. Should a Christian fight in a war? Should a Christian fight in a war? Well, should we should we be pacifists? We say, well, we shouldn't kill. Should, should a Christian fight in a war? And there, there's debate on that. Um, I, I, I think they can, but there, there's debate on that. Should a Christian be active politically? At what level and, and different things like that? I think they can, but some people say otherwise. Uh, should a Christian support the death penalty? Uh, I think they can. I don't think it's inconsistent, but some people do. We're, we're kind of in a little bit of a gray area where uh, you, you can have some liberty to, to believe a little bit differently on some of these things. These types of questions, there may not be a clear command to guide us, but there are general principles that help guide us to know what is right. Discerning what is right or whether what is best in Christian liberty, I think, is the theme of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Paul deals in each chapter with one major issue of contention that was going on in the church at Corinth. And I'll remind you, the church at Corinth is not a good church to use as an, as an example. They're a great example of what not to do. There's a lot of problems going on in this church, a, a lot of confusion, a lot of infighting. There's a lot of things going on in here. So when we look at these, these are real issues that this church was dealing with. And I think we can learn from their issues, from their mistakes in this. In chapter 8, just an overview real quick. In chapter 8, there's a very divisive issue in the early church. Should a Christian eat meat that was offered or dedicated to a false god, to an idol? That's um, kind of foreign to the modern mind, but we'll discuss that when we get there. I'll try to explain that. Chapter 9 is a very personal issue for Paul. Should a Christian worker be supported financially through their ministerial work? Chapter 10, I think, is a, is a question of separation. Should a Christian live and act like an unbeliever? We'll look at each of these and show you one great principle on each that I think Paul gives us. And these are great guidelines for us in to, to determine what our actions, what our attitudes need to be as Christians as we try to find our, uh, find our direction in this world. The first thing I want us to see in chapter 8 is our actions must not be a stumbling block for others. Our actions must not be a stumbling block for others. Chapter 8 deals with the question of eating meat that had been offered to idols. And I'm going to try to explain this. It's a little complicated. This is very foreign to our modern mind. Uh, in the ancient world, getting meat was not like it is today. You want meat, you go to Whataburger, you go to Brahms. No, you, know, you, you go to Walmart. Um, it's just it's freely available. It, it's it, you probably have it in your freezer in your fridge at home. Uh, but in the ancient world, there's no refrigeration. There's uh, the preservation. I mean, I think you can have like salt pork, some things like that, but it's very little. Uh, so meat is not a big part of the common people's diet uh, because of mainly because of the preservation issue. So if you killed an animal, you needed to eat all of it. Uh, you know, like I said, when you killed the fatted calf, it wasn't just to make a hamburger. 
you were going to have a barbecue. You were going to invite people over. You had a lot of beef to eat. Um, so the common people would typically, especially like in the urban setting, like Corinth. Corinth is a very big, prosperous town. There, the, the common people would have two primary sources for getting meat for their diet. One would be in the marketplace, and there would be some people, you know, butcher shop kind of things, and, and you could go and, you know, buy, a, buy go, go get you a ribeye and stuff, you know, like that. Um, or there was through the temples, and these are kind of related. Because um, the, the, these pagan temples that, that were all throughout the land, especially, you know, you're talking Corinth, you're talking Greece and, and Rome and this area, um, these these temples they would take these sacrifices that they offered and the meat that was from them they would offer it for sale and sometimes or give it out and sometimes even it ends up in the market it's it's there's a lot of overlap in this so when and I've even read somewhere I can't remember where I read this but that meat may have even been cheaper for some reason I don't know so when you went and you're like, okay, what are we going to eat? We we let's let's we're gonna we're gonna cook out. We're gonna make hamburgers here tonight. We go we go to the market and okay, hey, I'd like some hamburger. Okay, yeah, I've got some right here. And you look up at the sign and it says, all our meat is dedicated to the glory of Zeus, or something along those lines. I don't know if they actually have that on sign or not, but but basically that's it. You know, the, the, we, we, you know we're good. Uh, Pagans, we, we, we support the temple. This is where this is this is from. So some Christians looked at it and they say, well, who cares? Zeus isn't real. Apollo isn't real. There's only one true God. It doesn't matter. But then you had usually younger Christians, and they said, oh my goodness, I can't eat that. I, I, I'm not supposed to have anything to do with that pagan world, that pagan religion again. I don't want to support them. I don't want to be associated with them. So you have both of these sides uh, going at it, uh, trying to debate this. And in fact, if you look at verse uh, number one there of chapter number eight, it, it looks like there's a lot of infighting about it. It talks about, now it's touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up and charity edifieth. He's saying there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of people fighting over knowledge, but there's not a lot of love being used in these debates. What it sounds to me like uh, in this is that you had some Christians that are looking down their nose. <clears throat> I'm super Christian. I can actually pull my shirt today, you know, <clears throat> do my thing there. Um, so, well, I am a good, solid Christian. I know that Zeus isn't real, and I know who cares where that meat's coming from. It's a bargain. I'm going to buy it. And, and they were looking down their nose and telling these other Christians, like, hey, you're just, you shouldn't worry about the other Christians. Like, I don't want to support that temple. I don't want to support that. And so this debate's going, and there's a lot of pride, and there's a lot of people being hurt, especially these. Uh, what Paul would classify as like weaker, younger Christians uh, in, in the process. So what is the solution to this? Because the problem is, to be honest, they're both right. They're both right. So what is the solution? Well, it's in verse number 9. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. 
Paul says just because you can do something like eat meat that came from a temple to devoted to a, a Greek or Roman god, just because you can doesn't mean you should if it would hurt somebody, if it would cause someone to stumble. Uh, you, you walk into church and uh, someone is sitting in your spot. You could say something, but you probably shouldn't. You're going to scare people off. <laughs> we don't want that to happen. Uh, is, is it within your right? Well, my granddaddy bought that pew. You know? <laughs> I've seen those churches like that. Uh, anybody ever been in those? You know, they got the little plaques and everything. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we don't have that problem around here. That's not that's not an issue. But that, like I say, it's a question of can I? Yeah, you could. Should you? Not if it's going to hurt somebody. Not if it's going to cause them to stumble. Paul closes in verse 13. And I, I, I like what he says here. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. He says, if I eat a hamburger or a steak, and it is an issue, and I've got people who are struggling, and it turns them away from Christianity or turns them away from the gospel, he says, I'll give up Whataburger and Brahms, I'll, I'll give up steaks. I'll give up barbecues. I'll give up brisket. Oh, tell it'd be hard. You tell it wasn't a Texan. It wouldn't be so easy. <laughs> but, but but he says I would give it all up. I'll never eat another bite of it if it means I can reach people with the gospel. Can I tell you? Too few in our self-centered society are willing to follow that kind of example. Most people say, "Well, I can do it. I've got the right to do it." But so many of us in this society are too selfish. We don't think, what, what, what about the other guy? What are my actions doing to them? The second thing I want to see is we do not have to act on our rights. There's a little bit of overlap in some of this, but um, we do not have to act on our rights. And we're going to spend a little bit more time here looking at the clock. Both of the letters to the, the Corinthian church have Paul defending his authority uh, it's under attack. There's people that are attacking the gospel, attacking him personally. It's, there's a lot of stuff going on. They're trying to undermine the work of the ministry by attacking Paul personally. Chapter 9 deals with one of these attacks, and it, it is the Paul receiving the question of Paul receiving money uh, from the church, getting a salary or check or support from the church. You can read about Paul's time in Corinth. He's there about a year and a half or so in Acts 18. And if you go back there, we're not going to do it right now for the sake of time, but if you go back there, you'll find that when he is in Corinth, he spends that year and a half working with his own hands. There it goes, finally. That was acting up during Sunday school. He was working with his own hands to support himself. He met with Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. They partnered together. And they, uh, they, they worked to put food on the table, to pay rent, to take care of any kind of needs uh, that, that there were. So, uh, so he's doing that. Now, he evidently did not press the, the young church there for support. He, or else if they offered it, maybe he refused it. I, I don't know. But the thing is, he exercised his right 
not to take it, but to not take support from the church. Did he have a right to? Yes, he did. In verse 9, uh, he, he goes back to the law, one of my favorite verses, Deuteronomy 25.4, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. says it's cruel if you take that ox to the grist mill and you, you hook them up and they're going around and they're crushing that corn all day and the, uh, crushing the grain and stuff and they smell that and they're hungry. It's cruel not to let them get a mouthful every now and then. This was my excuse for eating candy during VBS. You know, I know it's for the kids, but, you know, it's... it's, it's anyway. Okay, over everybody's head. Uh, in verse 14, he, he goes so far to say, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He's saying that uh, someone in the gospel ministry should be able to make a living at the gospel ministry and they shouldn't, if possible, that they, they should be able to do that, that there's nothing wrong with that. But some are holding it against him for not paying. Not, sometimes, no matter what you do is right. If he had took money, there'd be people mad. Well, that preacher just did for the money. In this case, he didn't take money. So now they're saying, well, he's not a real preacher because this other guy came and he wanted money. Boy, he must be a better preacher because we had to pay him. Like I say, you can't win for losing with some people. Um, so that, that, that's the situation you have here. And by the way, the selfish can seldom recognize unselfishness because it is contrary to their nature. We'll say that again because it's a lot. But the selfish can seldom recognize unselfishness because it is so contrary to their nature. And these young believers in Corinth were very selfish, and he's trying to teach them a lesson about that. That's why he's doing what he's doing. So what is the solution? Should Paul have been paid or not? Well, the key principle is in verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. He's saying, yes, I have a right to get a paycheck, but I also have the right to refuse one. It says, I worked my own hands to be an example and to be more effective in the ministry. In verses 20 through 22, Paul talks about how he humbles himself in different ways to help reach different people. And by the way, I think, the, I think there's, th there's three groups in here. I think all three of these groups are inside the church. I don't think he's talking about people outside because he's talking about the church supporting him. In verse 20, Paul laid aside his personal right to not conform. He was a Jew. He did practice some Jewish traditions. He could have continued on in that. Um, but, um, but, he, but he was saying that, okay, I don't have to, but I will if it'll help me reach the Jews. He didn't have to follow the Jewish traditions, but he wanted to reach those who still kept them. In verse 21, he laid aside his personal right to maintain this. Even though he could live as a Jew, because of his uh, of his heritage, because of who he was. Yet there's Gentiles who weren't under the law. So to help reach them, he laid aside his right to be a Jew, to follow those customs, to reach those who didn't have to follow those customs. In verse 22, Paul lays aside his right to condemn or discipline the weak and struggling brethren. This is the opposite of what was happening in the previous chapter. Those, those being knowledgeable, <laughs> well, I'm... I understand that, the, that that Zeus isn't real and that that meat doesn't matter. You know, we're really, you're not honoring anything. He said, I, I could be like that, 
to the weak, to the young, the people who just don't know any better. But he says, I want them to know better. So he didn't have to put up with these misguided notions and these people that may not have had their theology exactly right, But because he, he wanted to strengthen those weak believers. This is how Paul became all things to all men. He laid aside his own rights to reach down to those in liberty or ignorance uh, took, who in liberty or ignorance took a lesser or weaker position than Paul would have. John Gill in his commentary puts it this way, which is to be understood as in all other instances of his being so, not in cases of things criminal or sinful, contrary to the moral laws and the dictates of his own conscience, subverses of the gospel of Christ, and of the order and discipline of it, but in cases of things of an indifferent nature. He says, in the things that just really didn't matter, I can give somebody a little bit of grace, and I can work with them and help them. Why did he do this? It wasn't just to identify with them. It wasn't a marketing strategy to help package the gospel in a way that it would be palatable to people. But Paul is doing his best to reach them where they are, to lead them to where they need to be. One of the greatest hindrances to the gospel and to the work of our churches is that people would rather exercise every right they have than to humble themselves to the work. Some will not serve without a title or a paycheck. I've seen that happen. I've, I've, seen, I've seen guys in ministry say, well, I would come, but what's my title going to be? Well, how much are you paying me? Some will not stoop to do the menial work. Uh, I've, I've heard stories. My dad told me a story once about a guy. He said they uh, got hired in the oil field. They pulled up to a gate and said, hey, hop out and get the gate. He says, I don't, I'm not getting paid to open gates. I'm going to tell you something. If you're giving me a paycheck, I got health care. You're paying me especially oil field money. I'll open every gate you come to. <laughs> but some people they won't humble themselves to do certain things. They come to church. Well, I I want to be the song leader. Well, I I want to be the youth pastor. I want to be the I want to be this. I want to be that. Okay. Well, you you mind vacuuming? Oh no, I don't vacuum. <laughs> uh, you mind scrubbing the toilets after uh, after Bible school? Well, now there's there's limits here. Um, that's not what Christian service looks like. Christian service lays aside our rights to be, and we become a servant. Some will not let their own name be diminished so that the name of the Lord be magnified. If ever there was a need in modern Christianity, it is this, the willingness to humble ourselves for the sake of others. And the third thing I want to see in chapter number 10 is simple. Stay away from darkness. Stay away from darkness. I think that's the theme in chapter 10 is separating light and darkness. Paul opens with an example of the Israelites when they left Egypt. Uh, the, the, they, they, these guys saw the Red Sea part. They saw the miracles uh, uh, that took place in Egypt. They, they, they saw the miracles of God's provision providing water and food in the desert. Yet, when they get there to... Um, they get out in the desert, they murmur, they complain, they turn against God in their hearts. And even though these were God's people, even though God pulled them out of Egypt with a strong arm, even though he provided and cared for them, yet he still judged them because of their, their hearts, because that they, uh, had, uh, they, they had turned against him. Paul uses that example to warn us believers that we too can fall into sin and be judged. 
you don't get somewhere. Like, <clears throat> I'm in church now. I'm. I. I, I would never. I, I could never do that. And God's saying, "Oh yeah, um, look at what I did to my own people, the Israelites. <laughs> I. I, the, I will judge sin. I will be holy. I will take care of this. I will purge this." Um, we should never get to the point where we think that God cannot or will not judge us. And the principle that Paul gives here, I think, is very simple. It's in verse 14. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. He says, don't just uh, not do it. He says, run away from it. Don't walk along the edge, but get away from it. Um, picturing this, I couldn't help but think about me and spiders. Y'all know me and spiders. Um, if I see a spider, I flee. I mean, I know a safe distance, is, you know, here and here. To me, though, I feel a safer distance here, and then I'm in Florida. <laughs> I want to be as far away from that thing as I can get. I think that's the idea here. We, we, it's not just, okay, I can tolerate it. Okay, I can be a buddy with it, but i got to get as far away from it as I can. If you study the situation in Corinth and the setting, uh, the morality of this city, it's a very, very wicked city. There's a trade going through here. Um, the, the temples, there's uh, the, the games and things that go on there. It, it's a very, very wicked city. I would compare it to a modern-day Las Vegas or Atlantic City, something along those lines. It's a very wicked city. Many of the believers here, they're struggling to separate themselves unto God because they're still trying to hold on to some worldliness and some, some of the pagan uh, things. They're, they're still trying to hold on to that. They tried to have a foot in the church and a foot in the world. A.C. Gabeline wrote on this chapter, I like this, it says, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, though they may profess Christianity and partake of divine things. Many of the Corinthians were in this dangerous condition, and the admonition and warning is for us as well. It's a simple truth, yet how often do we fail at this, to flee from the darkness? You say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in it, but I'm, I'm going to be as close as I can to it. No, he says, flee, run away, get away from it. Flee the darkness. Flee from sin and run to Christ. So to review, three very simple things. Say, well, I, I don't know, should I do this? Should I not do this? Three things to consider. Do not let your actions be a stumbling block to others. Do not demand your rights when it hurts others. And flee from sin. Now I want to close with three more little quick questions here and I actually read them at the very beginning from chapter number 10. And I think it's another good summary of this topic. In verse 31, where, where, for, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. The question to ask ourselves are, is, are my actions bringing glory to God? Are my actions bringing glory to God? Second, in verse 32, give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. The second question, am I hurting someone else through my actions? Am I hurting someone else through my actions? And then in verse 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. The, the third question is, am I selfishly profiting or am I helping, investing, edifying others? Is it about me, 
or is about others? Who's being lifted up? Who's being helped? Just some questions, some thoughts as we go through our life. When we hit a situation, we say, well, what should I do? Don't let your actions be a stumbling block to others. Don't demand your rights when it hurts others. Flee from sin. Make sure your actions bring glory to God. Don't hurt others through what you do. And make sure that in what you're doing, it's not all about you. Make sure you're helping others along the way. Those are great questions for the Christian, but as the musicians come, there is a greater question. The sound system said amen. That greater question is, of course, what must I do to be saved? We're talking this is a very Christian-oriented, practical message, but the greater question we have before you get to any of this is, do I know Christ? Do I know that my sins are covered by the blood? And we can know that for sure. First John tells us, these things I've written to you that you may know. Know. Absolute. Certainly know. Like you know your name. Like you know your birthday. I would say like you know your age, but I can never remember mine until this year when I turned 40. And I do remember 40. I could never remember anything in the 30s, but I remember I hit 40. But just like you know those things, you can know that your sins are forgiven, that Christ died for you, your sins to atone, and that through our faith in Him, we can have eternal life through Him. That's the greatest question, the greatest answer that everyone needs to know for certain the answer to. There's no gray area in that. It's yes or no. Have you accepted Him? Have you not? If you'll stand, please, we'll have a time of invitation. What number there? 120 in the Heavenly Highways if you want to sing along with the invitation hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, very simple, practical message here. But Lord, as we, we go through this life, there's so many situations we come across. We do not know what to do. We, we pray for guidance. We, we do our best to follow the principles of the Scripture. And sometimes we, we just need a good reminder of what the parameters, what the boundaries are, what the guidelines are that we need to judge our actions by. And Lord, as we, as we look through these three chapters very quickly this morning, some wonderful practical truths for us to, to, to judge our hearts and our actions and our motives by. Lord, I pray that this is a help to strengthen uh, those who, who hear it. Lord, more importantly, as shared there at the end, the gospel call as it goes out, that, Lord, those who have not heard, who have not accepted your free gift of salvation would do so before it's too late. Lord, just pray that you bless this message, press it upon our hearts during this invitation time, I pray in that holy name. Amen.